0: This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals.
1: It's the week of November 28, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 408 of Defender Radio. Two cougars killed by the conservation officers in a coastal community in British Columbia created quite the stir this week. Social media and traditional media were fascinated by photos captured by a resident, Gladys Miller, showing the juvenile cougars hunting a seal and lazing about the tiny town of Ocean Falls. The decision to kill the cougars, who the conservation officers say were habituated, conditioned and a threat to public safety, also fascinated many generating news articles, social media posts, and blogs, much like the one posted at thefurbears.com earlier today. Bryce Cassavant, the former conservation officer who was ostracized by the government for refusing to kill two healthy bear cubs, told me he wanted to talk about the situation. Honestly, I figured we'd talk for 10 or 15 minutes about the flaws of the service he left, and then I'd connect with a wildlife biologist to talk about the behavior of the big cats. But things went a little bit differently than I expected. A surprisingly candid conversation with Bryce ensued about his experience making life and death choices, struggling with conditions and circumstances regarding wildlife and human conflict, public perceptions of cougars, fear and safety, and his new work as a doctoral candidate at Royal Roads University exploring humankind's capacity to care about animals. And that conversation in its entirety is this week's episode of Defender Radio. We're going to talk about the young pair of cougars that were killed in Ocean Falls, B.C., which is a coastal community. Um, and the news is is very limited in what we've heard so far about what actually happened. Um, Conservation Officer Service has stated that... Uh, um, they did a an assessment of the behavior talked to citizens in the area and decided the two cats were a quote threat to human health and the city and destroyed the two cats uh but there's a lot of questions that have gone unanswered and uh uh, what was your reaction when you first sort of read the story of what went down with these cougars
0: you know i have i have the same reaction that i always have when these uh when these situations transpire and it's usually filled with dismay. <laughs> you know the public messaging that goes out from various agencies it is often uh, it's often packed with terminology and um, verbiage that's difficult to understand. And this public safety terminology um, is that's continually used within a wide variety of human conflict situations is is what I pick up on. And and I'm always I'm always dismayed when when I hear this uh, this projected messaging that's always filled with with public fear. It's promoting public fear is the way I see it. Yeah,
1: yeah I think that's a very good observation is by saying that these animals were a uh, a true risk or... Uh, and it's, it's actually, it's very similar, behavior, similar language used when police talk about lethal force. Uh, they were an imminent threat. Um, but there's, uh, from what I've read, and I am by no means a cougar expert, there didn't seem to be an imminent threat to the people of the community. Are we missing something? Is the, the news service not picking this up? Or is it very simply just sort of Language that's being used that either intentionally or unintentionally conflates the issue a bit it's
0: it's it's a little bit of a combination, and uh, you're right to pick up on on both those points so let's talk about the media one first we have to we have to understand that the media is is also telling a story, and who they go to um, to be able to tell that story is the public who filed the complaint and then subsequently the responding agency. There are other media outlets um, that sometimes go to uh, academia or other wildlife experts to get a balanced opinion. But when we have these public safety situations, that doesn't always happen because we're not talking about We're not talking about a a journalist who is actively seeking out a scientific explanation for an animal's behavior. What we're talking about is a journalist who's under a a tight deadline uh, to get out the story first um, and is dealing with what is perceived as a public safety situation. Okay, well, when you're telling a story about public safety, who do you call? Well, you call the police, (laughs) ask them for a quote, (laughs) you call the public who filed a complaint and and it's no different in these wildlife situations. When when we have a public safety perceived threat, you go to the person who's feeling afraid, you go to the responding agency, and then you're on to the next story. What gets missed in that is the language that's being used and being picked up on and being reported on. Uh, you know, what is printed in the public realm is what is said. So if a member of the public says, I feel afraid, and then the responding officer says, they should be afraid, then that's what
1: gets printed. And that very much starts and continues a cycle of fear of a lot of animals. And that's something I've, uh, as a former journalist, I have written and talked about um, my area of interest has always been coyotes here in Ontario, but uh, it is very similar. It's, um, you should be afraid, I am afraid, then we've got to do something about it. But a lot of questions don't get followed up on. Um, and I I guess I, I first want to ask, before we kind of get into some of those unasked and unanswered questions are cougars who are behaving this way in your in your experience an actual threat to a community
0: so i've um, as a former bc conservation officer um, i've landed uh, on both sides of this stance uh, i have uh, euthanized animals that um, i felt at the time were were actually posing a threat to to humans. And I have also hazed animals out of the community where there wasn't any evidence to, to support um, a public safety risk. I draw the line at stalking behavior. This is, this is my personal opinion. I'll, I'll get into why in a second, but I draw the line at stalking behavior. So in my in my case as a as a former conservation officer, where I have euthanized a cougar is where it's displayed stalking behavior and and usually towards uh, school children. So in the community that I lived in, in northern Vancouver Island, um, there is a very rural community and uh, there are a lot of cougars that come in and out of the community. And usually they're just passing through the green spaces that the community is built around. The odd time, um, you know, a couple times over the few years that I was there, you know, you, I, I have had reports of a of a cougar following children to school, or following children home from school, um, displaying stalking behavior. You know, where where the cougar would be described as uh, crouching, ears back, uh, hunched hindquarters, growling, swatting. These are these are aggressive. Um, I think any anyone, even without any training, could say that is that is an. A, a, Aggressive display of behavior. Um, does that mean they pose a threat? It's hard to say. And and even even in my own reflection, um, I don't know that I've, I I can never tell you hundred percent that I always made the right decision. Um, for the purposes of of human safety, I would say I erred on the side of caution for the purpose of protecting children that described the animal's behavior in that way to me. But did I actually truly know the animal's behavior? In some cases, there's no, there is no way to truly know. But what I was very careful of, and, uh, and, and it didn't always come out this way, and, and over the years, I, I've, also, I've also tried to change my own language, is, is promoting that fear. Just because an animal with, was, was euthanized in the community, for the purposes of public safety does not necessarily mean that every cougar you see is a threat and that's that's where that that line needs to be drawn where we have animal sightings in a community does not necessarily mean that animal is desensitized and actually displaying aggressive behavior and and when you couple that with how conservation officers in dc are actually trained Um, they are not provided any training on animal behavior. None. They are trained as essentially police officers. They're trained in, um, they're trained in use of force. They're trained in writing tickets, um, writing search warrants, how to safely ride a quad, how to, um, articulate, uh, legal situations in front of a court. Um, they are given training in trapping as well and trapping methods, uh, but they're not trained in a- animal behavior. So when I when I hear public comments um, made from employees of the agency that say, I assessed the animal's behavior, there's a few things that go through my mind. What does that mean? Um, does that mean someone from the public was telling you they were afraid? Or does that actually mean you were? watching the animal display aggressive behavior towards a school child or somebody that that didn't have the capability to actually protect themselves and in this situation i don't see i don't see any of those lines being any of those questions being answered what does that mean we assessed the animal's behavior and i and i asked that question out of my own experience knowing that i've probably made mistakes myself and, um, and knowing that um, there's no training provided to officers in, in animal um, behavior recognition, are we just defaulting to our own personal opinion and acting because we are the responding officer and feel
1: we have to do something for the public? And something that I certainly wonder about, um, and again, part of this stems from... Um from my time working with police as a journalist uh, in a city um, and sort of doing ride-alongs and spending a fair bit of time with them, um, how much of an issue is it that there may have been one, maybe two people available? And one of the questions I'm asking, uh, again, in, in this blog I've written, is um, you know, from the time of the complaint to the time of a conservation officer actually getting on scene, how much time had elapsed and was, was that conservation officer able to spend a day or two watching this animal before making a decision. So you, when you start kind of considering some of those things that again, with, you know, municipal police force, they have ratios uh, of citizens to officer and of, um, you know, crimes per hundred thousand to uh, deployment strategies. But with the conservation officer service, it's a very limited, uh, uh, sort of area of expert or not of expertise, but an area of job. There, there, there's not a lot of people doing this job in a very large area. Uh, so how much of that can influence a decision like this?
0: You know, even, uh, even in reading this ocean falls situations, I, I always, I, you know, I wasn't there. Right. So I always hesitate to, I always hesitate to, to critique uh, an employee of the agency when a, I wasn't there myself and, 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 B, for the last six years, seven years now, um, the BC uh, Government Employees Union, uh, a former chief of the Conservation Officer Service, West Coast Environmental Law, these groups have have been highlighting and advocating for increased staffing in this service because we don't have adequate resources to actually provide a public safety mandate as well as conserve our wildlife it's one or the other right now we, it, it is an understaffed service so so you know and and being in this position myself in a in a uh, in a rural community in Port McNeil, which used to have four officers plus a marine unit um, operating out of the region now it's down to one officer and at at, at the time when I was employed there it was me and, and so speaking from this uh, experience, I can say that, you know, oftentimes when you're, when you're dealing with these calls, for lack of a better word, and you show up to help the public, which is your, your, which is your intention, and, and your mandate, your, the mandate of this agency right now is not to conserve, right? It's public safety. If you go, if you go on their website, that is the mandate of, this, of the COS. So their mandate has changed over the years as well. So their employees right now are mandated for public safety and, um, by their own words and terminology, human wildlife conflict and public safety. So there is no mandate to truly conserve wildlife. So when you when you show up, when you go through this training, you get posted into a single officer post. You're working in an, in an understaffed agency in high stress situations, and then you show up to help the public, and you've been told and taught that your mandate is public safety and you show up there and you know, in the back of your mind, that there's no one else coming. If you don't do something today, what do you do? And, and how do you, how do you, how do you feel knowing that, well, what if that 60 pound cougar did jump a fence and hurt a small child tomorrow? And I can't stay here and watch it because I am the only officer. I don't have time to assess its behavior. I, well, this is what I'm going to say. Uh, it's a threat. Uh, it's gone. Uh, public, safe, and I'm moving on now. And so we, you know, although I think, I think it's safe to say that this isn't just a, a personal opinion loaded with my own bias here. I think I, think I can safely say there's been, uh, you know, not only the union, but West Coast Environmental Law and a former chief of the service saying, listen, we got a staffing issue. Um, we can't provide a public safety Mandate service right now and conserve our wildlife with the staffing levels we have. We got a problem, and this has been going on. This has been going on for a long time, and and it's unacceptable.
1: Okay, so that just kind of answered a bunch of questions. Um, now I have to skip ahead in my notes, and you're making me look unprofessional. Thanks, Bryce. Um, <laughs> okay, no. So looking, yeah, you know,
0: you know, and I say this, I say this too. As you know, I, I'm also in my, I still work for the BC Public Service um I work for the Ministry of of Forest now but um but I I'm, I'm a shop steward in as well for for the union so that, you know my my job uh, part of my my job in in representing union members is is to make sure that um as well our union members are safe right so this this goes beyond just public safety and just conserving wildlife we we have we have employees in the field uh, you know we've given them badges and guns and some training, and we've sent them out into the communities with a public safety mandate that we can't back up, and 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 we can't we can't we can't even back them up in their own in their own work, right? We we don't have the ability to actually conserve our wildlife right now, and and I would say that those staffing levels um, do contribute to an increase in wildlife deaths and government wildlife kills because the officers perceive there's no other option and um and and i think that all feeds back then into how do we articulate the situation on the ground the type of language we use on the ground what we tell reporters and what we tell the public and what we tell our boss that we did today and it all feeds back into how do you justify an action? How do you justify the action of killing when you don't have staffing resources, you don't have the training, et cetera, et cetera? What, how do you justify that? Somebody was in danger, therefore I acted in good faith. That's really the only answer. And so I think, I think, I think when, when we break it down that way, um, that answer wouldn't be acceptable to the public, nor nor probably uh, the government or the union, um, if we had adequate staffing resources, if we had um, good training for uh, animal, animal behavior assessments, and we actually had a mandate to conserve our wildlife, these answers wouldn't be acceptable in the public realm anymore. But we don't have that situation. And so... And so all these other factors start coming into play where that becomes the justification for the action of killing wildlife
1: um, for public safety reasons. And it really feels like an impossible situation because it's, you know, I sit here behind my desk in a city on the other side of the country um, reading all the all of the available public information on this incident. And I come up with five questions and that they're in my blog um, and we can kind of go through those quickly, but um, it's another to consider that you're right, there is someone standing alone, very much alone, being told you have to protect this community. This animal may or may not be a threat. You don't have the necessary training to know, but you have a responsibility still. Um, and we know that the Conservation Officer Service is now requ- is no longer allowed to relocate cougars. That's just no longer an option. Um And, again, we don't know how much time there was. Was this someone who had been there for three days watching and learning and trying to haze, or was it someone who showed up and spent an hour? Um, So it really forces us to, I think, empathize as well as consider the, the expanse of this problem, is it's not just one decision. It's this series of underfunding and policy and... Uh, lack of training, all culminating in that one moment. And, and again, talking with uh, um, and you'll have the same experience, uh, albeit a little differently, uh, speaking with with veterans, with police officers, uh, with firefighters, and even some paramedics. And they tell you there was a second to make a decision as to what to do, and lives were on the line, and to as, as much as I, I, I get angry and upset by the death of these animals, it, it is very humbling to think about that, that this is simply a person standing there uh, trying to make a decision. So I think that's definitely a very important lesson for all of us on the advocacy side to keep in mind. Um, and it's certainly something I, uh, I'm glad you brought up. and uh, Now, I, I do want to go over these questions I had, though. Yeah, um, and, and, let me, and let me just pick up on one thing before, before we move on there. You know, it's,
0: um, I, I do also draw the line on that use of force um, concept when we relate it to police. You know, here, um, I, don't, I don't think any member of the public would ever fault any conservation officer or police officer that had to act Li- truly, in in a split second, and killed an animal um, to protect someone. But that's not always what we're talking about, right? We are talking about situations where there could be alternative alternative actions taken, like in this situation, where we could try to trap, we could try to haze, we could try to um, take alternative actions because of the time frames we're dealing with. But we have to remember that often the time frame is shortened, not because the officer has to act quickly in the interests of public safety, but because he's either being ordered to or doesn't have the training or the staffing resources are not available for him to take an alternative action. And so it's not necessarily a matter of I have to act in a split second to save somebody. With a lot of these wildlife situations, we have the time frames to do something else but it's the it's the other external pressures like staffing levels, being ordered to kill an animal, um, your own training, your own bias and opinion
1: that come mm-hmm. into play. Uh, there's, and I think, sort of the lesson at the end of the day in that regard is the uh, uh, very broad. Again, just the, the this is not a single simple issue. Um, although there may be some simple solutions to help it along. But uh, the, the, the questions that I, I wanted to go over, and you already kind of spoke about some of these, um, but the one that really strikes me, uh, sort of a two-part one, is um, what human behavior led to the alleged habituation or conditioning of the cougars, and what will be done to prevent this from happening again. So the the in the article by the CBC, it's made very clear by the COS that they believe these cougars were habituated and conditioned. But that doesn't happen without human influence. Uh, they don't just learn. I mean, they have to be shown that this is safe. And this this is not always an intentional behavior on the part of people. But that's, that's how habituation or conditioning or uh, uh, the increase in proximity tolerance, all, whatever you want to call it, it all stems from the, the wildlife testing or being curious and a human doing or not doing something to sort of confirm that behavior. So why is that question? And, and I, I understand a journalist maybe not knowing to ask that, but why is the Conservation Officer Service not saying outright that we believe it is this because of that?
0: Um, because I, I don't... You know again I'm not the, I wasn't there but, mm-hmm. but in my experience having dealt with um, cougars in rural communities, what usually draws a cougar into into a community um, and provides that you know quote habituation is is actually feral cats um, you don't uh, there's no there's no uh, and children. Uh, as, as well, so small, small children, feral cats, things, things like this is is what would draw a cougar into a a small community like Ocean Falls. But here, here, um, I didn't hear any of that in in the comments made from the service or the media or the public. What I saw was a picture with a seal on a wharf. Well, I don't I don't know that that's habituation. There may have been. Uh, there may have been a few cougars that were successful in hunting in a rural environment and became comfortable because their kill was still there. Yeah. I don't think I don't know that that amounts to habituation. I think that amounts to um, protecting a kill site, uh, which is normal cougar behavior.
1: Well, yeah, so, I mean that's like if someone tries to take a sandwich off my plates, uh, um, I'm going to slap their hand and or uh, make a new sandwich and they can't make a new seal. So, uh, and I did read, there was one comment from a resident saying, it looks like he was protecting it. And my, I just like of course he is like, that's an amazing Thanksgiving meal for a cougar. Yeah. And, and, and
0: again, um, so in my situation, I had a similar, um, I had a similar situation with, a um, a, a mother cougar and, uh, and two kittens. You'll notice in my language here, as I'm speaking with you, I, I don't refer to them as cats. Uh, mm-hmm. I also, I also don't refer to um, I don't refer to uh, removing or destroying or uh, you know, I, 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 refer to them as cougars um, or mountain lions. That's what they are. Um, and, and I do that purposely because I think when we, when we call, when we call them cats, it, there's, there's something less than, right in in our mind um, in the public's mind they are they're uh, a, a small animal is something less than wildlife less than what they actually are so um, i do I do try to refer to them as, as cougars and um, if we are uh, going to talk about killing the animal then, then I will say that i will, I will call it for what it is we 're talking about killing a cougar because it was protecting its um, meal it's kill site, right and so I try to I try to correct my own language as well to make sure that the messaging is correct in in what we're talking about so so here um, yeah I don't know uh, that we can say um, the cougars were habituated and and I in my situation I had something similar with a with a mother cougar and two kittens but it was fish not a seal and uh, it was in a, an urban environment with some green space uh, towards the back of where these houses were, and um, i I did shoot them with rubber bullets and I removed the uh, the fish that was there and um, and I brought it into the bush quite a ways away from from the houses. They never came back, so um, you know that and uh, and my instruction was to kill them so this was this was before my my bear cub situation, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, so you know this um, this concept of of hazing is uh, is there and the tools are there to to haze um, animals and wildlife like cougars. It's it's often not an action that's taken though because of the perception of. Um, a risk to public safety. And I say perception because you you just can never truly know. Yeah. So, um, and again, when we talk about all the other factors that we've, we've spoken about before it, it, you end up with a a single officer on the ground trying to figure it out. And he's got, you know, he's got to, he's got to make a decision. And, um, and again, the officer's own experience, comfort levels, and, um, and bias and worldviews all that comes
1: into play right so when we then look at this i mean and this i think there's two parts to this story one is the the obvious photos uh from a resident which are really remarkable they're wonderful photos to see um of these uh young cougars uh chasing playing with their their food etc um, it's, it's sort of a once in a lifetime opportunity for them in many ways. Um, and the, sort of that made the story more interesting, which is why we're talking about it today, but this is something that is repeated regularly. And as you said, there are sometimes opportunities where you say, well, what actually caused this problem in, in the story you told, it was that there was a resource made available and by removing that resource or managing that resource, the conflict was removed To me, that would be the most cost-effective way of dealing with this because by removing the two cougars in the uh, uh, Ocean Falls situation, the actual attractants have not been managed at all. The the reason that they were there has in no way been influenced. So it's entirely reasonable to think this could happen again. So how do we, the public, uh, the advocates try and push that as part of the required agenda uh, whether it's you know conservation officers or um, you know first responders such as police who sometimes deal with these issues how do we show them that you have to address the core problem not just the instance of the conflict
0: right and in this case um, the attractant for lack of a better word was, was other wildlife, it was marine life, it was a seal. And we're not going to go remove all the seals from the community, right? I mean, so, <laughs> so what, are, what, are, what, are we, what are we talking about here? Are we going to then, I mean, and this is my question. Um, so are we then, now that we've set this precedence, is, is the answer to the public, any time a cougar kills a seal in BC, we are then going to kill the cougar if somebody sees it. Is, is that our answer to this problem, and and we're going to do that forever now? Well, I don't I don't know that that's that that's reasonable. Um, that that seems a little off as a as an approach. Um, and what I think that we need we need to understand is there there are other ways to to um, develop wildlife coexistence strategies and you'll, you'll notice I didn't say there are other ways to manage wildlife because we are part of the problem as humans. Our actions, not just in attractants, but our actions in response to public complaints are also part of the problem. So we're not talking about managing wildlife. What we're talking about is developing a coexistence strategy and what is that coexistence plan going to look like and removing um, a mother and two kittens out of the population because they accessed a natural food source close to human um, inhabitants. I don't know that that's a good coexistence plan for a variety of reasons. One of them, one of them biological. We have cougar populations that um, dominate uh, certain habitats. When, when you remove animals from that population it creates a void it creates a sink in the in the land base and it is reasonable to presume that that will then be filled with another cougar or another cougar family over time so have we actually eliminated eliminated the problem was there actually or was it was it necessary to to kill them at that time would be the first question was was there actually truly an immediate risk to a, a child or human health and safety or was it a perceived risk so was it was it necessary to remove them and in 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 killing those cougars have we then ha- created an unintended consequence of contributing to a further problem have we set ourselves up to act this way as humans for the rest of time are we is is there now a public expectation that every time you see a cougar in your community you should be afraid and we will be there to kill it for you is is that what we're saying and and how do we how do we and if so how do we correct that and um, i would suggest that that starts with uh, some of our language we need to realize that we're not managing wildlife we're also managing humans and we need to start referring to these Plans and, and response, um, response timeframes and response strategies uh, by government to public concerns. We need to start looking at, at this as a coexistence uh, plan and coexistence strategy. Uh, we do need to provide education uh, to the public and our officers as well, police included. Um, and we need to look at this more as uh, this this is an action that we can control. We, we might not be able to control the cooler's behavior, but we can control our own behavior. And that is where the leverage point truly lies, is in human action and human behavior. And if we can start wrapping our mind around public education and coexistence planning and not, ses- not setting precedents for killing every time there's a sighting, but rather education and awareness and coexistence, um, then I think we're we can start paving a pathway a pathway forward. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that there will never be a time in the future where wildlife needs to be killed for the purposes of public safety. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we're too far to one side of that spectrum and we've lost our balance. And we no longer look at situations from a coexistence and
1: species conservation
0: standpoint.
1: And that's the problem. Well, and I think Something that needs to be addressed too in some of the, the conversation about this is that much of what we currently have as policy is stemmed from game management, uh, which is the old-fashioned way of managing wildlife to ensure an ongoing supply for consumption. Um, and what we now know about ecology kind of outweighs all of that, but there is still this attitude, uh, I perceive an attitude, of game management in Modern quote unquote wildlife management, but I want to ask you: um, At what time did you begin considering the 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 weight of the words you're using? Because you are very considerate. That's 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 very clear to me, um, and you clearly see the influence that the words in the public have, that the words in the policy have. Uh, as it relates to both our simply our perception of wildlife, straight through to the choices we make. When did that come into play for you? Was that uh, something that you picked up just over time? Was it part of your time as conservation officer, or is it your time uh, as a scholar with Royal Roads University?
0: Yeah, well, yeah, that's a that's actually a really good question. It's a combination of both, I think, and and I I say that with some self reflection as well, because if you go through um if you go through some of my uh old if if a studious journalist wanted to say that Bryce Casaran is lying today on you know, Defender Radio, what they would do is they would go to the North Island Gazette, pull some old media articles from a few years ago and say, Well, see, when you were a conservation officer, you said exactly what you're telling us not to say.
1: <laughs> and and
0: it's true, it's true. When when I when I was first hired by the conservation officer service, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid. And uh and 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 in in that process, though, over time, you start you start getting a heavy heart, you know, like this can't be the only answer. (laughs) Killing everything that moves because it was seen can't be the only answer. And and what am I doing that's contribute as an officer? What am I doing as an officer that's contributing to this problem? And so what you'll see is as a a new recruit officer, my media comments were made at the time were very, very much in line with whatever the agency was saying and then became less and less so um, towards uh, my situation with the bear cubs. And then this past year, um, not being employed with the service anymore and having a different job in government, um, you know, in, in this new job, I'm, I actually analyze policy and, uh, and reports to Crown Council and, and other administrative um, legal proceedings. And I've had my language corrected by um, lawyers and, and other managers over this last year quite regularly. And that raised the question for me in my academic work. Well, really, what are we saying in, in the wildlife realm? Uh, as, as government employees, as journalists, as the public, what are we saying that's contributing to this problem? If I'm writing a, a, a forest river report and I'm this wrong in my language talking about trees, how wrong am I talking about wildlife? And so this, this last year has really been a reflection on language and, and the messaging and the image that we project to the public and what the public then digests as true and and i think we end up in a situation where over time what we say as figures of authority becomes true in the
1: public mind
0: and that's not necessarily right
1: well and that's i think to to conclude all of this uh, it's it's been a very candid conversation um you, and i don't mean to to inflate your ego but you're a very insightful person and i think a lot of people may not recognize that in, in some of your immediate clips, but we can blame that on the, the 24-hour news cycle and traditional media. Uh, but here at Defender Radio, we like to give people an opportunity to talk because we are morally superior. Anyway. Well, this raises a good question, Mike. So here's
0: here would be my question back to yourself and your listeners and to uh, probably some studious uh, uh uh, politicians or, or or managers are going to try to find something wrong in what I said today. Is here's my question back. Okay, so now that we've recognized this, what are the counter sound bites? What do we want the media saying? How do we figure out? You know, we can't have an hour long discussion with a journalist who has a deadline. It's not it's not reasonable to assume that. So, my question back to yourself and your listeners is: All right, what are the counter sound bites, people? How do, how do we change this language to help out our our fellow journalists to help out with public education. What are our counter sound bites? And uh, I think that's a great question to reflect on: is how do we counter that? Then, what are what are the sound bites that we can use that starts reshaping this problem into coexistence planning versus true um, sort of, as you've mentioned, game
1: orientated uh, wildlife management. Well, and how do we also address? I don't want to call it transparency because I don't think it is transparency, but that insight, the insight you are displaying right now, and you you have clearly evolved in your time in government uh, as you start questioning your, your own actions, not just the actions of others, um, but really trying to grow individually to, to see how you can do better at being you and how you can be better for the world around you. How do we try and foster that conversation, do you think?
0: Well, I I think, you know, one of the, this is, uh, I'm going to stray now um, away from my government employment and just talk about my work uh, with Royal Roads University. But this is one of the things that I I am looking at is is what I'm calling uh, a capacity to care. And, and essentially, if you want to boil that down, it, it's compassion and empathy. But, but really, really, it's that social capacity to care. You know, how do we build that in our law enforcement officers? How do we build that in the general public, in our journalism, in our reporting, in everything we do? How do we have a capacity to care, not just for one another, but for the other species that we live with? Where is that bridge building, um, that interspecies bridge building for that capacity to care. I believe it's in language. I believe that's where we start. Um, But I don't have a firm answer on that yet.
1: That's disappointing. I was hoping for a billion insight that would uh, (laughs) wrap up this conversation perfectly. Um, But for now, I guess, what do you want people to to ask themselves? And what do you think might be something we can do just on a day-to-day basis? Again, I mean, this is... uh, uh, one thing I struggle with is I, I, I read the news. I read about Donald Trump. I read about oil spills. I read about all of these things and I think, what can I do? You know, I have no influence in the world. I have no great opportunities. I, I can speak to a relatively large audience uh, through work, but even then I'm somewhat limited by the furbear's mandate. So What can we do in our day-to-day lives to step towards that greater compassion or that capacity to care?
0: We can look at our own actions and what we are doing to contribute to a a broader problem. And and specifically, the actions of what we say and and what we report. So, um, I don't want anything that I've said here today... uh, to suggest that you shouldn't phone a police service or the conservation officer service if you're feeling afraid. That's not what I'm saying. But when you do pick up that phone, be very conscious that you're accurate in your reporting. Um, and, And when someone shows up to help you, ensure that not only are you accurate in your reporting, but that you ask them those critical questions. What are your feelings? What are you going to do to help? Do you actually care about the animal? What is your, you know, asking, asking those, those critical questions back, um, I, I, really think is, is helpful for the people in authoritative positions that show up to start inwardly reflecting on themselves and, and what they're doing as well and asking them, are, is there an alternative action? Have you considered an alternative action?
1: Um, I think these are important questions, uh, to, ask. to learn more about bryce get in contact with him and find out a bit about his exciting new political career head over to BryceCasvant.com. that's the show for this week folks i want to thank bryce for his extremely open and honest conversation about his experiences and all of you for listening in until next time this is michael Howie for defender radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong